One of the wonderful things about a community-based radio station is that uh, by not being focused on what's commercial, you get a lot of wonderful inputs on different types and styles of music, which I think everybody enjoys. And it's my great pleasure at this point to bring someone to this program who's been doing this since 1987, the purveyor of today's aberration, tomorrow's fashion. Jeff Fekety, welcome to Radio Parallax, Jeff. Thanks a lot, Doug. Boy, 22 years. That's quite a record. Yeah. But actually, we're not inviting you on to talk about music. We're having you come on to talk about a book you've written. Let's talk about this book. Well, thanks a lot, Doug. The book is Making the Big Game, Tales of an Accidental Spectator. It's my first book, and it was inspired by a wholly unexpected trip that I made last year to Super Bowl 42 in Glendale, Arizona. And uh, how, did you, uh, how did you get into the running to go to the Super Bowl? Well, it was kind of a quirky set of circumstances that started with my wife's employer, my wife Mindy Stewart, who's also a DJ here at KDBS. Um, her boss is a New York Giants season ticket holder, has been for a long time, and his name was selected in the Super Bowl ticket lottery, which allowed him purchase rights for two tickets to the game. He recently had knee replacement surgery and was unable to attend, so he kind of hemmed and hawed and procrastinated and ultimately decided to uh, see if perhaps we would be interested in purchasing his transferred rights to buy two tickets to the game. And we had about 24 hours to decide what we were going to do and said, let's go for it. If you're going to go to the Super Bowl, you got to make a lot of decisions in, in a short time. Absolutely. And that's what really I found out sort of set this whole thing in motion was that there's large decisions to be made in a very narrow time frame. And the first was, do we want to cough up $700 a ticket for a chance to go to what probably is the hottest single ticket in professional sports. And that was a decision that was just the first of many. Um, another one was how were we going to get our hands on the tickets? Because the way the NFL Super Bowl lottery process works is that if you are selected to have purchase rights for the tickets, you have to claim those at the box office of the team that has awarded those rights, which in this case was 3,000 miles away at the Meadowlands in New Jersey. And I ultimately enlisted a cousin who lives <laughs> about an hour north to stand out in the freezing cold on Saturday, the 26th of January, 2008, to pick up those two tickets. And that led to another conversation between my wife, myself, and my cousin, which was, do you have an interest in also going? This being myself speaking to my cousin. And he did, and we realized what that would do is it would open up a whole new can of worms because it put us square in the secondary or ticket broker, what some like to call scalper market, for third seat. And that was another adventure that <laughs> uh, kind of also inspired the book. Well, it's interesting matter for me. My, my mom and dad were season ticket holders for the 49ers for, since 1955, and despite their five trips to the Super Bowl in the, in the 80s and 90s, um, I think they only got like two tickets. So it, there's, certain, there's, there's, a, there's definitely a luck factor involved. There is. Roughly two-thirds of the tickets that are allocated for the Super Bowl are allocated to season ticket holders of existing NFL franchises and fans that um, have a statistical chance of being pulled. My father-in-law, also a 49er season ticket holder, went to Super Bowl 16 in 1982. His name came up. He's a longtime season ticket holder. And face value for the tickets in 1982, $40. <sighs> 
Well, Jeff, you hear, I, I always wondered about my, my dad getting screwed <laughs> from this lottery because, you know, General Motors, you, you read, was going out and getting like a thousand tickets. And certainly there's a lot of, uh, of um, you know, corporate tycoons and, 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 and powerful interests that want to go to that game. Absolutely. And they buy up a lot of tickets, I guess. How, how many do they grab? Roughly a third of the seats are allocated to essentially insiders, corporate sponsors, league officials, uh, famous former players, and this is basically what people normally associate the Super Bowl crowd with. Uh, what I discovered was that uh, most of the fans who are situated in the upper deck where we were are longtime fans, diehard fans, people who've had these tickets for generations, and they have seen tremendous inflation um, in ticket prices in for this particular game in the space of the last 20 years of, or so, which I have found is been in part precipitated by the tremendous amount of traffic that happens online and in the the secondary marketplace the super bowl is a highly speculative ticket and one that there's a predictable cycle for that somewhat reflects some of the boom and bust cycles that we've seen in the economy in general and that was an observation that i felt was worthy of inclusion in the book and a little bit more research well, let's say I'm Bill Gates and I want to go uh, high styling here and I want to get one of those luxury boxes you hear about. What, what would that set me back? A luxury box for this year's Super Bowl, for Super Bowl 43, this past weekend, a 36-person suite was available on one of the online broker sites for $310,000. <laughs> the price had fallen in the space of about four days to early this week to the low, low price of $254,000. And if you give that some thought, you realize that there is a $50,000 spread there. And that similar spread occurs with everything down to upper deck single ticket seats. So it creates an environment where a number of buyers are not out there as fans. They're out there as speculators and entrepreneurs trying to make money flipping tickets. Well, you did this a year ago, um, and I, I'm sure that Things are changing, but um, if I decided right now I wanted to go to Tampa Bay to see this year's Super Bowl, how much funds would I have to be committing, do you think? My estimate would be that ultimately you would probably pay, if you didn't have lottery rights access, that ultimately you might be able to find an upper deck seat somewhere in the area of thirteen dollars to $1,400. And the reason I say that is because the prices will fall as it gets closer to game time in a predictable cycle. And what I ultimately found was the, the best, most advantageous thing to do as an intelligent consumer of this product as opposed to a passionate buyer, and it was hard at times to separate the two, um, was to work with a local ticket broker and to also do exactly what the league and the <laughs> uh, major online brokerage houses uh, will advise you not to do, which is to fly to the host city and seek to purchase a ticket to the game the day before. And this is what I ended up doing last year in Tempe, Arizona. And part of the purpose of my book, I believe, is to try to educate the sports fan and let them know that you can be an intelligent consumer. Um, and hopefully what that will do long term uh, is, is perhaps moderate some of the escalation that we've seen in this marketplace and perhaps uh, quell some of the speculation that seems to just be rampant in this particular, with this particular game and event. 
Well, Jeff, I'm quite tickled by that fact that you decided to uh, go against what everybody recommended and actually went down to Arizona to see if you could score a ticket down there, and you were successful. Yes. In fact, while my cousin was in flight from New York, uh, again, no pressure. Yeah, no pressure at all. Lots of pressure, definitely. Just horrible visions of two seats and three people standing outside the stadium. Um, we secured that for him on Saturday morning, but on Sunday, on game day, the interesting thing was is that the continued transaction of tickets with technological online assistance was going right on up to kickoff and was like happening. Out in the parking lot? Uh, actually, in the parking lot, scalping is legal in the city of uh, Phoenix. And I am an advocate of a free market and legalized scalping because it's the only thing that guy in the parking lot who stands there with the sign that says need tickets may be the only circuit breaker that still remains between uh, that fan and a very ruthless online marketplace that continues to churn right on up to game time and now is doing so by virtue of an exclusive agreement between the NFL and Ticketmaster. So um, I think that the more we can keep the channels of availability open and the free marketplace operating without a monopolistic type of constraint, the better off everybody's going to be. Yeah, it's funny you say that, Jeff. The free market certainly takes a pounding in some circles, but, uh, but you know, uh, properly used, a free market is can be a wonderful thing. Well, what we're really talking about is transparency and the fact that it's very important that these online brokers, I feel, that if they're going to trade in what they refer to openly as a commodity, that perhaps they need to be treated in the same manner of securities because you literally have people out there now who are selling futures contracts for major sporting and entertainment events. And this is cause for concern when you're looking at a limited supply and a very sophisticated online channel and a relatively small number of major ticket sellers that enter into exclusive agreements with the, the promoters and venues, in this case, the National Football League. Uh, the name of the book is Making the Big Game. And Jeff, you're going well, to be signing some books here this weekend. I'm doing two signing events on Saturday at 1 o'clock. I'll be at Jay Crawford Books, nice little locally owned bookstore on Freeport Boulevard that's located uh, just uh, by Hollywood Hardware. And on game day, on Sunday the 1st, I'll be in Roseville at 1.30 at Mandango Sports Bar and Grill. That's on uh, North Sunrise in Roseville, just a half block north of Douglas Boulevard. And that will be uh, inside a inside a, a nice nice venue with a lot of uh, screens to watch the game. So I'm looking forward to it and just being able to interact with everyday fans. And um, that's happening again on the 31st and the 1st of February. Well, the, the the big game is on the 1st of February. Why don't you come back and give us a little follow up after that? Uh, some of your observations about the whole nature of people coming in to buy tickets. I'm sure you'll be some fresh uh, fresh data. <laughs> Thanks very much. I'll do that, Doug. One final question. Who do you like on uh, on Sunday? You know, everybody is uh, going to go with the underdog of the Cardinals, and that's the sentimental pick. However, I really do think that not enough folks are talking about Pittsburgh, and I, it, it's my guess that Pittsburgh is going to prevail. Well, next time we speak, we'll all know. And if you'd like more information, you can go to Jeff's website, makingthebiggame.com. And I'm sure a lot of you are going to want to do just that. All right, let's close the show with a couple of obituaries. We're getting behind in this. 
and we do like to note the passing of people whose lives should be commented on. First, a man whose voice you've heard many times during this program. That is, if you are listening on KDVS, because legendary actor Ricardo Montalban recorded a spot for the Shriners Hospitals. I play the spot a lot, not just because it's a worthy cause, but because Ricardo Montalban just executes so well. Well, I, I said that in the present tense. Uh, and he will live on, his, his, his art will, and, and his, his spot will. But alas, Ricardo Montalban passed away last week in Los Angeles at the age of 88. Montalban was one of the first Mexican-born actors to make it big in Hollywood. He was best known for his roles of Mr. Rourke on ABC's Fantasy Island and as the villainous Khan of the Star Trek franchise. I know the second movie in the series, The Wrath of Khan, is still considered by most to be the best of the lot. Being in the 1940s, Montalban starred in dozens of films with some of the greatest names in movies, including Clark Gable and Lana Turner. When uh, major film roles dried up from in the 70s, he turned to stage and eventually TV, where he became familiar to millions of people as the mysterious host whose signature line, Welcome to Fantasy Island, opened the hit show that ran from 1978 to 1984. Within the industry... Montalban was widely respected for his efforts to create, opportun- to create opportunities for Latinos. Personally, my favorite Ricardo Montalban story <laughs> relates to his ad that he made uh, uh, for Chrysler back in the 1970s. This was done for the Chrysler Cordoba. While they were filming the commercial, Montalban decided that, <laughs> to make a reference to the soft Corinthian leather of the Cordoba. He thought the phrase Corinthian leather sounded pretty cool. And it did, but there is in fact no such thing as Corinthian leather. Which is frankly what you just have to love about the guy. He pulled it off. Born in 1920, he was the youngest of four children of Castilian Spaniards who had immigrated in 1906 to Mexico City, where his father owned a dry goods store. After graduating high school, he went to Los Angeles where his oldest brother Carlos worked and got a job in the studios. Noted by an MGM talent scout uh, who noticed him in a student play. Next thing you know, he was in the movies, starting with playing a bullfighter in Esther Williams' film Fiesta. He had a friendly rivalry with Fernando Lamas. This rivalry would later be immortalized on Saturday Night Live. Uh, during, during one skit, they asked, Quien es más macho, Fernando Lamas or Ricardo Montalban? In 1993, Ricardo Montalban received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Screen Actors Guild, where he served as vice president but from 1965 to 1970. We also must uh, comment on the passing of the popular artist Andrew Wyeth. Noted The Week magazine, Andrew Wyeth was probably the only painter who was a favorite of both Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev and President Richard Nixon. Wyeth was beloved by the public for iconic works that depicted the bleak beauty and submerged suffering of rural America, whereas highbrow professionals dismissed him as middle class and simplistic. Apparently, Wyeth's greatest crime in the eyes of these highbrow professionals was that he painted in a realistic style, which apparently just ruffled the feathers of the Museum of Modern Art crowd. And by the way, if you've never read Tom Wolfe's The Painted Word. I highly recommend that uh, you do so. I must confess, I I do 
suspect, as do many, that a lot of what passes for modern art is kind of a big hoax. In fact, I got kind of a tongue lashing last summer from a woman who'd formerly been uh, the partner of a, uh, a modern artist. In fact, she asked me, well, what do you like, realistic style? And it was said in the manner in which you might ask someone, what are you, a child molester? Her former fiancé's work, which seems to resemble giant dinosaur turds, and which are probably displayed all over the Sacramento area, was, uh, you know, in, in her view, apparently the, f- the, the finest embodiment of what is art. The part I love about Wyeth was that he was not above, said the New York Times, self-promotion. Apparently, 240 previously unexhibited Wyeths depicting a woman, nude, and sometimes clothed, named Helga, came to light in 1986. He'd been painting her for apparently more than a decade without his wife's knowledge. When they asked his wife about what the pictures were about, she fueled speculation by saying love. Following a storm of publicity and a retrospective at the National Gallery of Art, the Helgas fetched a reported $45 million dollars. After which, Wyatt denied that he was really having an affair with Helga, and his wife admitted that she, in fact, had seen a few of the works before. And we are out of time. Our thanks to Neil deGrasse Tyson and Jeff Fekete, and of course, Will Durst. We'll see you next week at the same time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. Radio Parallax.